Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. So the passage set for today is the story of Jesus having a conversation with a woman by a well. We're going to read it little by little, and I'm going to make some commentary along the way, which I hope will be helpful. So we pick up in John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. Dun, 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 okay? That's the actual audio that would have played in people's heads, obviously, when they read this for the first time. Because for a Jew to have to travel through Samaria, uh, well, that was asking for trouble. So let's just back up slightly. We see that Jesus is getting his ministry off the ground. Things are taking off. He's becoming popular and also controversial. And we're told that the Pharisees are catching wind of what Jesus is saying, and they are becoming hostile towards him. So the situation is getting a bit too hot to handle, and Jesus and his disciples are leaving Judea to go somewhere else. Back to Galilee, we're told, to continue the ministry there. But to get there, they have to go through Samaria. So the text wants us to know that Samaria isn't the destination, wasn't the plan to go there, but they have to travel through it on the way to where they want to be. Okay? The reason they wouldn't have wanted or chosen to travel through Samaria if they could avoid it was because for Jews and Samaritans, they really didn't associate with each other. For Jews in particular, even walking through their land was seen as a possible contamination source. So they would, uh, when re-entering Jewish territory, shake the dust of Samaritan soil from their feet before they re-entered their own land, you know, to avoid contamination. That's how seriously they took their purity over and against the Samaritans. Now, for Jews and Samaritans, really, they were very, very similar. And they had that kind of animosity that you can only really have with another group that's very, very similar to yours, only with a few slight differences. And so you focus on those small differences. So Samaritans were a race of people that really sprung up um, during the time of the Jewish captivity in Babylon. So whilst most of the population was carted um, away into uh, exile, those who remained, the Jewish population that was left behind, uh, intermarried and got on with life, um, but kind of intermingled culturally, and they were seen as less pure Jews then. So when the original Jews who had gone into exile returned a few generations later and re-established worship uh, at Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple that had previously been destroyed, uh, when, when that whole second temple Judaism started to take off, they um, kept themselves separate from the population that had now become, in their eyes, impure, okay? Because they'd intermarried and taken on other practices. And so they were seen as less pure than the original Jews. And so that group is who we come to know as the Samaritans, okay? So it was that sort of animosity. But other than that, they were very similar in their beliefs. They both, you know, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, a, bit like, um, a bit like Protestants and Catholics. Okay, you're talking about the same religion, the same heritage, but you have a few minor differences 
which people will focus on and they will fight over. Okay, so nothing much has changed. Anyway, ending up in Samaria wasn't the plan and yet we're told they had to go through Samaria. So we pick up in verse 5. Um, so he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman dun, 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 came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I'm sure he said please, but we can't know for sure. In any case, he asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. So, before we look at the social situation that's developing here, just something else to note. And that is just Jesus' humanity, all right? And his vulnerability and his frailty. Often we think of Jesus as just empowered by God with like a force field around him and he just goes everywhere sort of floating around. But no, the text shows us here, Jesus has to deal with his frailty, his humanity, in the same way that all of us do. He finds himself tired, thirsty, hungry, um, and actually isolated, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, in verse 8, we're told that his disciples had gone into town to get food, and probably the reason that Jesus didn't go with them was he is trying to avoid attracting attention to himself. So he's already left one situation that's gotten a bit too hot to handle, the last thing they want when they arrive in Galilee is to have been associated with some kind of um, movement within the Samaritan villages. Okay, he doesn't want to um, gain notoriety there too, because then he may be seen as tainted. Okay, remember the animosity between the two. So Jesus, for whatever reason, avoids going into town, uh, although he's hungry, and sends the disciples to go and get food on his behalf. So he's waiting by the well, and he's isolated. He's tired. It's hot, he's thirsty, and he's hungry, we're told it's noon, the hottest part of the day. Interesting side point here. You may note that at the moment we are well into the season of Lent, and Lent takes many of its themes from the story of Jesus in the wilderness. So you know the temptation of Jesus where he is fasting for 40 days in the desert, and he's tempted by the devil, all those stories. Well, they happen in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke, but not in John. Or does it? Because I wonder, is this John's version? Because just like those other stories, which also happen around about chapter 3, chapter 4 in the other Gospels, and just like those stories, Jesus is in a wilderness location, he is tired, he's vulnerable, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and it could be argued he's about to be tempted. Tempted to do what? Well, tempted to compromise his purity on one level. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean as we go on. So anyway, this situation develops. We've got Jesus vulnerable sitting by a well and this uh, Samaritan woman approaches and he asks her for a drink. This whole scene, before the conversation even happens, the whole scene is filled with dramatic tension here. A male Jewish rabbi with a popularist following uh, versus an unnamed, unmarried, as we will discover later, female Samaritan. 
In this context, it would be hard to imagine a more insignificant character to place opposite Jesus here than this woman. The power imbalance here is stark. Neither of them are likely to have been in this social situation before. Okay? So whatever social distancing had been going on, it has now been collapsed into this story as the story gathers pace and the conversation is about to unfold. And look at how it unfolds. This insignificant minor character, when she is asked by this more powerful male character with a much higher social standing for a drink, she comes back at him. And she says in verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? So the situation is not lost on her. She knows the power dynamic is wrong here. Why is she being asked for something by this man? Most versions of the Bible will have in brackets here something like Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans or in the GNT version is even more helpful. It says in brackets, Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. So Jesus doesn't have a bowl or a cup here. The woman does. And Jesus is asking for a drink. And aha, the balance of power has shifted. And she's not about to let that go unmentioned. Oh, you were not good enough to share bowls and cups with, and you're wiping the dust off your feet when you go through our land, but now that you're thirsty, all of a sudden, now you want to share my contaminated bowl. Right? So you, right from the beginning, we get a sense that this woman uh, is feisty, um, she's confident, and she's not just going to be ordered around. So Jesus does um, what any of us would have done, right? And goes theological in response. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, please, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? So there's a, Jesus is obviously using some kind of metaphorical language here. He's, he's trying to alert this woman to um, a higher reality um, about living water. Um, but there's also a little hint of, you don't realize who I am in what Jesus says. And that's the part the woman, the woman picks up on. And again, she goes after him. In verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, right? We've established that. And the well is deep. Okay, you've got problems. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? So she's like, look, who do you think you are? You've still got the problem of no bowl, and the well's really deep, so I don't know how you're going to magic up this living water. She is not having this theological, highfalutin, um, profound talk. She brings it right down to a practical level. And she's like, well, how is this going to work? And who do you think you are anyway? Jesus, it seems, not to be dissuaded, tries again. And he carries on. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Meaning this water here in the well, the, the water she's just referred to, right? He says, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again anyway. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. 
the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. So Jesus persists in trying to alert her to a higher reality than what's going on here. The woman, however, is still being quite practical and she still pushes back on Jesus and says, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. So you get a sense that she's fed up with this whole backwards and forwards fetching water from the well. And she quite likes the idea of not having to do that. So she's still thinking on a really uh, terrestrial, practical level. So Jesus seems to change tack. The whole conversation between what water we're talking about or whether it comes from heaven or who has a bowl and who doesn't, all of that's about to go off to one side and Jesus is about to bring the two of them closer together in what they're talking about. Because in verse 16, Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, there's a few different ideas as to why Jesus tells the woman at this point to go and get her husband. There could be lots of reasons. Maybe Jesus is realizing, do you know what? This is potentially uh, a controversial, offensive um, position we're in. Me, a single man talking to this woman out in an isolated spot. It's not really culturally appropriate. He doesn't want to cause offense. So maybe he's like, let's just draw a line under the conversation and let's do it the, the proper way. Go and get your husband. We'll carry on and do this properly. Or um, Jesus really thinks that this woman isn't understanding what he's saying. And he wants the husband to come who obviously would have had more theological training, more reading perhaps, and maybe he'll, he'll get what Jesus is saying. Or others have suggested that um, Jesus is just trying to provoke what happens next. So Jesus tells the woman to go and get her husband in order to provoke the conversation that comes out of that. We're not sure exactly why, but in any case, the conversation happens. And the woman responds to Jesus when he says, go call your husband and come back. She responds by saying, I have no husband. Maybe this is when the woman admits her vulnerability and her isolation in the same way that Jesus is isolated as well. Maybe this is when these two people at opposite ends of this uh, social spectrum start to close the distance between them. I have no husband. I imagine that sentence sort of hung in the air for a few moments and Jesus looks at her and starts to see what's been going on in her life, sees everything she's been through, and then lets her know that he knows. Because Jesus says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is true. Now, sadly, and you may have heard this yourself, many commentators will suddenly try and point out that this woman was obviously some kind of sinful person. She's had a string of husbands, so she must be a woman of ill repute, maybe even a prostitute. And then they put two and two together and say, aha, that must be why she was at the well at midday. Because in those days you would go early in the morning, 
or later in the evening um, to avoid the heat, and you would go as a group usually. So if a woman goes by herself at midday to draw water, well, obviously, she must be in some sense excluded from the normal uh, communal life. And they would then say, well, because she's had all these husbands, that's more evidence, she must be some kind of sinful person. And that's really unfortunate and really unhelpful that people go there because that's not in the text at all. And there's absolutely no need to um, apply that to this woman's character, okay? For a start, in those days, a woman couldn't just dismiss her husband and move from one to another, okay? Men could take wives, but wives could never take husbands just off their own bat. Just, you couldn't just divorce and remarry as a woman. In fact, women would have had little or no say uh, in the arrangement of marriages. And marriages were arranged contractually between family involving the transferring of property and other assets between the families. And it was all done from the male side. And the woman was just taken as a wife. Okay, you can even read about this in the story of Jacob when he ends up taking his two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah. You can see all the contracts between him and his uncle Laban and how he works in order to purchase his wives. So it's all there. So if a woman has had five husbands, it means she's gone through multiple arranged marriages over which she would have had very little or no say, either because she's been passed between husbands or because her husbands have died through sickness or war. Either way, it means she's had something of a difficult and possibly traumatic life, at least until this point. And she's vulnerable. Uh, why was she at the well at midday? Could be any number of reasons. Um, maybe they just ran out of water. Maybe someone broke a water jar. Maybe she just forgot to go in the morning. Who knows? Or possibly she was marginalized. Maybe um, she had found herself self-isolated. Maybe she just felt she couldn't fit with the other women in her village. Now, we already hear she's tired of, of coming to the well over and over again. And maybe she's tired of the whole thing. This whole do what you're told, do what your husband says, don't engage in theological arguments as women weren't supposed to, don't talk back to a man, don't associate with Jews. You know, she's heard this her whole life and we get the sense here that she's quite an assertive person. So maybe her isolation is self-imposed and she sits at the margins because no one really knows how to get the best out of her how to let her wonder and her knowledge, her intelligence, her strength actually be part of the community. You will often find that with people at the margins, that they actually have much to offer. But for whatever reason, this woman certainly seems to be marginalized in some sense. But there's absolutely no reason to assume that she was any kind of sinful person, you know, uh, more or less than anyone else anyway. So, Jesus um, puts his finger uh, on something that's going on in her life and she begins to soften to him because of this. And maybe they start to see each other uh, in a clearer light. And so the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. But here she goes theological again and straight to the theological hot topic of their day. She says, Our ancestors, meaning Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, meaning Mount Gerizim. But you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. So she goes straight to the theological hot topic 
of their time. The argument between Jews and Samaritans was mainly about where to worship, right? And so she sees Jesus as an equal with whom to have a theological debate. Jesus responds by saying this. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he sort of brushes aside that whole hot topic, that whole theological debate. He doesn't get into it. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus brushes this whole theological um, flashpoint aside. And it seems to be this that really softens the woman. She sees something in Jesus and responds by saying, I know that Messiah is coming. So she's like, I know my theology, right? I'm, just, I'm not just some housewife who doesn't know anything. I know Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Then Jesus leans in and says to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So suddenly, suddenly, having been at opposite ends of the social spectrum, Jesus and this outsider arrive at the same place and are beginning to really see each other. And the important thing is they got there together. It's not imposed on this woman by Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't just, you know, give her a lecture and say, here's the stuff you need to know. Jesus values and trusts this minor character to take the journey with him. And together, they arrive at the point where she suddenly gets who he is. But he's allowed her in the process to demonstrate her knowledge, right? Her intelligence, her strength. He's allowed her to come out of herself. All the while he's saying, and I also know what you've been through. And so by the time they get to the point and the woman realizes what's happened, who she's talking to, she has been empowered along the way. And she has been affirmed and she's been trusted and she's been valued, maybe for the first time in her life. And I don't know that that was always um, Jesus' idea from the start. I mean, maybe he engineered this whole thing but I kind of get the impression that Jesus goes along the journey with her. He starts out just with a basic need, you know. He's just thirsty. Yes, I know we're not supposed to share cups or bowls, but just give me some water. But then things get interesting as the woman pushes back and they go backwards and forwards and with theology and all the rest. And then finally they talk about Messiah together and arrive there. A similar thing happens in another gospel where Jesus meets uh, a Canaanite woman, we're told, and she is a Gentile. And Jesus wasn't quite ready at this point to start ministering and working with Gentiles. Um, but this Gentile woman says, can you come and help my son? He's sick. Can you come and heal him? And Jesus initially is really negative and says, no, I've not been sent to the Gentiles. It would be wrong to give the food for the children to the dogs. So he implies that she's a, a dog 
which was a common way to, for Jews to speak of Gentiles in those days. But that woman also came back at Jesus and said, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus responds positively to that. He says, you've answered well. Fair enough, let's go. And so we mustn't always assume that Jesus just has this kind of uh, power play that he rolls out and that he's always manipulating conversations and people into situations to get them where he wants them to be. It seems to be that Jesus is also vulnerable. In fact, the text seems to want to go out of its way to point that out. It seems to be that Jesus works through a kind of a weakness and a vulnerability and even a willingness himself to learn and to journey with those with whom he is talking and arrive at a good place together. And what's interesting is after this, if we were to read on in the text, but we'll, we'll stop there. If we were to read on, we would see that the woman goes into the village and gets everyone who she, who she can get her hands on and says, come and see this guy. He told me everything about my whole life. And so she does end up doing what Jesus says. Instead of just going back and getting her husband, uh, she gets the whole town. But this time it's on her terms, you know. She's not just told what to do. She voluntarily ramps it up tenfold, a hundredfold. And maybe exactly what Jesus described has happened. She becomes the fountain of living water that others begin to benefit from. And so definitely there are power dynamics at play here. Socially, theologically, uh, culturally, there's a lot behind the text that doesn't necessarily jump out at us as 20th century uh, Westerners. But there's something about the power that Jesus employs, or the way Jesus uses his power, that's, that's compelling. You may know that there are um, at least six different ways in Greek to talk about love. We just have one word love, but there are six different Greek words, and the same thing applies to power. So we just have the English word power, uh, but in Greek there are three separate words that talk about different kinds of power. There's uh, kratos, which refers to like um, dominion or exerted power, uh, like authoritarian. So a king who can order a load of guards or soldiers into battle has a lot of power. It's not that the king is necessarily physically strong, but they can exert their power through others. Okay, so that's kratos or kratos. Then there's dunamis. So dunamis is where we get dynamite from. This is talking about an explosive, physical, overwhelming strength. Okay, that kind of muscular, irresistible power that an individual might have. So there's that, there's that kind of power. And then there's another kind of power that we don't really have an English word for, um, and it's exousia. And this is a feminine noun, if you look it up in Strong's Concordance, and it's more of a compelling power through vulnerability. The only way to really understand this is to think of the power of a baby. So if you were to think of the other two kinds of power, if you had someone who was really physically big and strong and powerful, they would have dunamis. If you think of someone else who could, you know, command an army to attack another army, that's Kratos. But then if you had a baby, that's a whole other kind of power altogether. 
It's the power of vulnerability. Because a baby can get you to do all sorts of things. You know, we defer to young children. We watch our language around them. We protect them instinctively. A baby doesn't say, I'm exerting power over you, but we're kind of compelled and softened when we're around little children, aren't we? We know the importance of babies and children. And so that's the kind of compelling power we're talking about, which is not a power that comes directly from the source and overwhelms everyone else like the other two, but it's the kind of power that's given by us, a disruptive sort of power that instinctively interrupts us and makes us be careful uh, or draws us to smile or laugh or pick up the baby, you know? And it's interesting that that's exactly what we get in Jesus, you know, where we might want to have a king or a powerful warrior to lead us. We get a baby, you know, we get the nativity and that's a whole other kind of power together. So whenever um, in the gospels, it says Jesus speaks with power, not like the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the word it's using. They're saying that Jesus is using a different kind of power that isn't overpowering, isn't dominating or explosive in that way, but the kind of power that's compelling. Listen to Brené Brown here talking about how we as Christians or church might have forgotten how to have this kind of non-threatening power with people. Love and shame are mutually exclusive. Love and threatening are mutually exclusive. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to threaten someone or shame someone or intimidate or harass someone. You don't have to exercise power over people to love them. In fact, I don't think you can exercise power. You can exercise power with people, which was Jesus, power with people, but not power over. I think we don't like the word power because we automatically conflate it with power over but there's also power with and power among people. And so I think church has become power over when Jesus was power with. Um, and not all church and some churches are trying really hard, but like I always think about I always think about, here's the thing that always thinks, I th always think is weird. You have Jesus as this great teacher of love. And he's naked or he's in robes or sandals and he's teaching us and he's living love and he's sharing power with. Um, and he's not respectful at all of power over. And then you have churches that are created that are all power over and you have priests and pastors and rectors in these vestments that are like, and you got naked Jesus, the best teacher, and then these like completely armored, you know, I mean, worse than the military uniforms, completely armored clergy. Um, and so we just have moved away. Um, we've moved away from love and power with. So it seems from this that God is not interested in dominating 
or overpowering us through sheer force, but instead is compelling us, loving us into better versions of ourselves and taking the gamble that we'll follow the example of Jesus and do likewise with each other. That we won't try and overpower, coerce or force each other to conform with whatever we want them to conform with, but that we are willing to listen, to look and see people as they are, to love along the way, to change ourselves, and to be people who use a power with the world as opposed to a power over. We are, all of us, Jesus sitting at the well, isolated, tired, thirsty, anxious maybe, and we need a drink. We are reminded of our frailty, we're reminded of our vulnerability, and we just need some reassurance, maybe. We need that well of living water as much as anyone else. This woman that we've been talking about, this Samaritan woman, in Greek Orthodox Church, she has a name. Her name is Fortini. It means light or enlightened one. And so I want you to imagine Fortini um, there alongside you as you are sitting at the well. Imagine cupping your hands together to make the shape of a bowl. And imagine Fotini sending the bucket down into the well and drawing up cool, refreshing water and pouring it into your hands. And instead of draining through your fingers that water that she has just placed into your hands just sits there. It stays. And as you look at it, you see your own reflection. And as you see yourself, hear Fotini say these words to you. Let there be light. Let there be. 
first and last is searching for the first and last is searching for the first and each and every one of us to behold, to see you for who you really are. Show us the God all around us, inside us, through us. Waken each of us and alert all of us to your true presence. Help us shed the image that our culture puts on us, that tells us who we ought to be, how we ought to be, Keep us from self-isolating our spirits. And may we come into union with your spirit. Will you, our Lord, help us to come into the fullness of the wonderful creatures you created us all to be. Help us to become those fountains of living water. Show us the way forward even in these frail and fragile times. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.